Hey guys, you are listening to Killer Cocktails, where the drinks are stiff, but the bodies are stiffer. This is a casual true crime podcast where two friends get drunk and talk about gruesome murders. Each week we pick a different drink whose name or ingredients set the tone for our stories. Hey guys, it's Drea. And it's Jackie. And we're back for another week of Killer Cocktails Podcast. Mm-hmm. This week, we are doing the Washington Apple Cocktail. The Washington Apple. It is crisp, and I like it. I like it. It. I would not do multiples of these. Too sugary? Um, no, but like when I finished the drink, I was like, that's it. Yeah. I, I had no desire for a second one yeah upon first sip it's a little boozy mm-hmm. uh, but then it was it was kind of crisp like a it tastes apple. like an apple yeah. it totally makes sense um there was as i got to the end of it i was like oh it's a little bit of a medicine taste mm-hmm. not a ton but a yeah little. i feel like a little boozy we got real giggly mm-hmm. yeah that was when yeah <laughs> um but we yeah recorded a song i highly recommend this cocktail to everyone definitely yeah. um we were also doing the Washington- it was recommended Oh, by a listener. Yes. Um, our good listener and friend, I'll say, our Instagram friend, um, Asio Aaron. I think you say Accio. I think it's Accio Aaron. Aaron. You know who you it's are. It's a Harry Potter reference. Thank you so much for recommending these. these yeah, are, she's fun. These are super tasty. And thank you so much for always engaging with this. Um, your comments are super funny. <laughs> um, we also decided to do the Washington Apple um, on Memorial Day. Washington. Yeah, it makes sense. Washington Memorial Day. And I was just going to give you a little insight uh, into Memorial Day. So originally it was called uh, the Doctrine Day, meant to honor the Union and the Confederate soldiers who died during the American Civil War. By the 1900s, it had become a day to celebrate all soldiers. So originally it was Civil War related. Mm -hmm. And then it was like... Everybody. Yeah, and okay. then they're like, we're going to celebrate also soldiers who've died while serving in the military. And it wasn't until 1967 that it was legally named Memorial Day. Hmm. So there you go. Um, but yeah, that that's the cocktail. I didn't really find any history on the Washington Apple. There might be, but it's probably a dispute between a couple bartenders. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> if you know the history, reach out to us. Let us know. Yeah, we'll, let us know. We'll let people know. Um, besides that, I think we're just going to jump right into some murder. Right into the deep end. Here we go. Because Jackie told me her story is real bad. I regret choosing my story because it is... It's horrifying. Okay. Like, I I found... So, I'm going to tell you about... um, There was an attack on two women that lived in Seattle. And one of them was named Teresa Butts. And the other one... Her name is out there. She's been on shows. She's been on interviews. But in a couple of the articles that I found, they said, per her request, they weren't going to say her name. Okay. So I'll follow that same vein, and I won't say what her name was. Um, But she was the domestic partner of Teresa Butts. Teresa died, and her partner did not. Oh, okay. And they were attacked by a guy named Isaiah uh, Kalibu. I'll get to his name in a moment. Um, there was a, a local Seattle writer who wrote for a paper or a publication called The Stranger, Mm -hmm. and he followed the case and he wrote a like really long essay about it. And it's full of, cause he was in the court 
like dictating everything that was yeah. talked about. Um, so he has a very detailed uh, account of what happened that day, that night, all, all of it. Um, his name is Eli Sanders. Okay. And the name of the article that he wrote, so he it was titled The Bravest Woman in Seattle, and it was a publication in The Stranger. Mm. He has since written a book that probably has even more. So he's very careful and cautious of giving a lot of uh, backstory and paints the picture of who Teresa was, who her partner was and is, mm-hmm. um, what happened with Isaiah. Because um, what you kind of, what bubbles out of the story is that there were a lot of times that Isaiah was in front of judges um, with police intervention. He struggled with mental health for mm-hmm. years and years, and it was escalating. And he would get these little sentences. He would plead down. I think it was impact, you know, full prisons and jails. Um, it's just a story of someone who fell through the cracks and it ended in a really traumatic and terrible event. Yeah. Um, so at his trial, uh, Teresa's partner was on the stand. She had two days worth of testimony. And so the attack took about like 90 minutes. Oh, my God. And her uh being on the stand and talking about it was two full di- like six hours of testimony over oh two days gosh. so uh what this reporter who was in the room was he said the horror of what happened made the court reporters uh, made this guy so made eli cry the bailiff cried the jury had to hand out tissues to everyone the prosecutor would take long pauses to collect himself oh. the family and friends in the like out in the whatever you call it the audience at a trial yeah um that the camera woman who was shooting video for television stations that she's crying in the back it broke everybody oh my god um so i'll kind of tell you about and i might i'll get to stuff and i'll probably skip it because it's horrible if you want to know everything that happened all of it is in the bravest woman in seattle Mm -hmm. it is very detailed of all the things that happened to them Um, because she talked about all of it up on the stand um, it was a Friday in uh, July. The partner had been out. They both had like kind of high power job. They both made good money, worked for big companies, were living in Seattle, like this one neighborhood in Seattle. Um, they had been, I don't know how long they've been dating, but they've been dating a while. And uh, Teresa had texted her and was like, hey, because she's working late. She's like, hey, are you coming home tonight? And she's like, yeah, I'm on my way. Mm-hmm. So she gets back. Teresa's there at the house. Um, and they kind of put pen to paper and they go through their finances they were going to have a commitment ceremony coming up at the end of mm. like in fall like september of that yeah. year um and she's like we have enough money and they were like celebrating like let's go out to our favorite bar let's go to loretta's it's oh, right down the road yeah so they walk down to loretta's um the second booth from the door is like their spot they're like it's always magically open for us um and they have just what the partner describes is she was it was just a really wonderful night like remembers what they had for dinner and the drinks that they had and uh that it was kind of their spot everybody knew them there um they're having conversations and she goes this was kind of a little bit abnormal for us but we're having really deep conversations about the future and that uh teresa really like we wanted to quit our jobs teresa really wanted to open a cafe slash movie theater she wanted to call it real cafe like r-e-e-l real cafe um you know, how we're going to do that, finances, like, what, what's the timing of it? Um, it just kind of adds extra, like, yeah, tragedy to it, that mm-hmm. it, you know, that there's this whole wonderful th- little thing going on. 
Um, they talked about having kids, that Teresa, who was 39, uh, and both of them had assumed she would never be the one to carry a baby, was like, maybe I'll have the baby. Oh. Um, they So they wrap up at Loretta's, and they go back to their house. Yeah. Uh, she describes, um, and there's multiple times in this where he's like, on the stand, re-witnessing this whole, like, terrible thing that happened. She's making little joke like she's saying sweet little things about you know her former partner mm-hmm. making fun of her in certain ways making fun of herself and certain yeah. like she'd give the jury reasons to like break just, tension and kind mm-hmm. of like she just kind of sounds like a charming person yeah is he in the courtroom during all this no okay he should be and he's not allowed to be because he keeps having wild outbursts okay he keeps like uh, leading up to this the trial leading up to this yes yeah, so in, in pre-trial stuff he's cursing loud like he's uncontrollable so he has to be um because originally they'd bring him in and like there's like a special chair you have to be in if you're being difficult yeah um so for most of his trial he has to be in another room watching on closed circuit television Mm -hmm. but for her part where she's giving where he's allowed like the judge was like you have to behave yourself and if you're if you can then you can because you're uh, legally you're allowed to confront your accusers yes mm-hmm. so uh it's like the one day like they put him in a suit but he's not allowed to like, they're afraid he'll lash out at people and he'll do things mm-hmm. so he's in a like a wheelie like think of like hannibal lecter yeah he's in like a chair version of that and he's got these mittens on his hands so that he can't uh fiddle with anything uh-huh and they have him hooked up to electrodes. So the moment he starts being unruly, they will shock him. Whoa. It's, is that visible? Like if, like if he were to yeah, get shocked, they, is it? Because they say at one point he gets one of the mittens loose and starts to try and mess with the electroshocker. What a thing to see as a juror. I know. I don't know. It I, definitely paints somebody in a certain picture. Yeah. Yeah. Like we've yeah. talked about people who have to be in like cages at their yeah. trials. If you're wheeled in and you're not like like i understand no, like no amount of bias can you overcome yeah i like definitely see in law like why you should be able to confront your accuser and mm-hmm. vice versa but at the same time i i feel like some bias is given to the jurors not like this case mm-hmm. definitely he sounds yeah. like a, a monster um but i sometimes i feel like it should be behind clothes like you hear all the facts you don't get to see the race gender you know of, the others talk of that yeah so i don't know it's i just, don't either especially for this situation like if somebody's rolled in like hannibal lecter not well, that i'm how, gunning yeah, for him well, at how, all and how but... hard then you put yourself in her place like uh-huh. it's got to be so hard to relive something yeah and, and have, have to see him right there yeah yeah um so they talk about how they like uh they stop by this little store they pick up some beers she doesn't let this is i think about Teresa that she doesn't really smoke normally but like for whatever reason she gets a couple cigarettes and like smokes these cigarettes on the way back um they sit out in their backyard for a while they're like staring at the tree again they're like having these like forward thinking conversations and all this stuff they keep talking about how hot it is i kind of chuckled at this they keep talking about how hot it is and they're like it was like 80 or 90 degrees at which, night? Which is, in Seattle, is super hot, I guess. At night? Yeah. That's super hot. you <laughs> 90? At night? Are you... Are you shitting me? That's this unbearable. Is hot. Just, just, oh, my God. <laughs> well, just think about... You're trying to go to sleep. But what, what's the difference during the day? 
that makes sense. Then it was probably like 150 during the day if it's 90 know. at night. Oh and my I don't know God. that it's 80 or 90 at night. I just remember seeing those temperatures and being like, calm down, they, Seattle. Wait, wait. No, no, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm going to fight for Seattle. Yeah, up. no. Because they went to dinner. They Can went we talk to di- about they you went can't to dinner. handle being hot? No, it's insane. But I guess I'm I'm talking to the wrong person. No, no, you, no. 73 degrees is too hot for you. <sighs> Yeah. So you would you would think that but 80 or 90 is unbearable. They went and had dinner, right? Yeah. So they are chatting at night and it's 90 degrees at night? I'll get to when it's 80 or 90. Anyway, Ugh. it's very hot. Teresa was from New Orleans. She's from somewhere hot. Ugh, so she's humid. not like yeah. dying there. And she goes, uh, they had had like squabbles about, she's like, I'm not having an air conditioning unit in Seattle. <laughs> it seems insane to put AC in our house in Seattle. Like, if it's going to be hot, it's hot for, like, a day or two. Yeah. Like, let's calm down. It's bearable. But it explains why it's so hot and they don't have AC, why their windows are open. Mm. Um, okay. So then, so that's Friday. They have this great little, like, round town Friday. So then Saturday, July 18th, 2009, uh, they go to – this is one of the funny little things. So they go to a Weight Watchers meeting in the morning that, like, their friend – had set them up to go on this. Uh, so they go to this Weight Watchers meeting, and one of the uh, defense attorney, maybe, um, somebody goes, you know, how did that go? They make some, like, follow-up question. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the partner's like, well, I mean, like, <laughs> gestures to herself. She's like, you can see I didn't keep going to Weight Watchers. Yeah. Um, Why would you have a follow-up she's, question? I, she's, like, not overweight or anything. Yeah. Um, so their friend had gotten them this double-decker tour bus. Uh-huh. This is for the two of them to do on Saturday. They would go to different microbreweries in Wait, the South this, Park. Is this the one who got them the Weight Watchers thing? I think I missed. No, a, I think I missed. Oh, so they they went to oh, this Weight Watchers okay. thing because they wanted to lose weight for the upcoming got wedding. It, that got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, then their friend, <laughs> that friend is setting them up for failure. Yeah. <laughs> then their friend sets. So separate from that, a friend sets them up for this like double decker bus that goes through microbreweries. Okay. Um. There's stories of, like, Teresa pretending to be a bartender on the bus. There's all these fun photos of them, like, hanging out with everybody. Um, they Are they with friends or just strangers on I, the bus? I think – I would think they're with their friends. That seems like something a, a group would yeah. do. Um, again, it's really hot <laughs> in this double-decker bus. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> um, it's late afternoon. They go to a dressmaker who's working on, like, their dresses for the Aww. upcoming ceremony. Um, again, it's just, like, it's a really great day. Uh, they go to, I think they stop by like a little outdoor market and they do a bunch of like grocery shopping and stuff. Um, then they go to dinner. All right. Now they're just at the house. So the horrible part is here. They wake up. Oh, I don't know how much to cut out of this. Okay. So, uh, the partner wakes up and there's a, like a naked man in their room. Oh my God. Standing over the bed. He has a knife in his hand. Um, and he puts it. To her throat. Yeah. She wakes up to terrifying. Yeah. Um, and she says, like, at first you're just kind of, like, processing, like, who is this person? Why is this person here? Well, what is Am happening? I, yeah. Obviously, it's dangerous. There's a knife involved. Um, she didn't know if Teresa was awake next to her. Like, she like she knows what's going on yeah. right now. Um, and she doesn't want to, like, take her eyes off of him to, like, check. She's like... Yeah. Uh, then she hears... Uh, he says, you know, be quiet. You have to be quiet. I don't want to hurt you. Um, and he tells them to take off their clothes. Uh, but And Teresa's awake. Now she knows that Teresa is awake. Um, and oh, I don't want to go through all this. It's really horrible. Um, Teresa tells her, uh, 
sir, I'm on my period. Like, I don't want to take my clothes off. Yeah. Um, he says, I don't care. Uh, then he starts, so he starts, uh, raping to, he basically, he rapes both of them. Yeah. Does he tie one up during, or like how No, he... he keeps telling them that if someone does anything, he's going to kill the, the partner. The one that he's with, yeah. So you're not running away because then your partner's going to die. Yeah. And you're not going to go after, like, so he, like, just through fear. He yeah. has them frozen yeah. in fear. No, yeah, definitely. And he just, and again, over 90, he rapes them multiple times in every way you can be raped. And at some point, and he keeps like, and both of them are like saying like, like I think they're religious and they're like saying prayers out loud. He's kind of saying, like he keeps saying like, and then later in trial, he's like, uh, my God was telling me to do that. I needed to do this and that it didn't matter. And at one point, like, and then they're having, because again, this is going on for a long time. Yeah. So they're also kind of having conversation with him uh, that he'll entertain to a certain point of like, why would this be happening if you had come in the house and we were just like an old man? Mm-hmm. And he was like shrugged and was like, probably like, it didn't matter yeah. who or why. And uh, so he was coherently talking to them. Yeah. And then he, so it's going on and there's, and again, like if you're, if you want to know everything that happened, you yeah. people can look it up and can see, um, then after that he takes them to another room there's like a pair of jeans on a on a bed or lying like something happens where in that moment up on the stand she's saying the whole time we thought we were going to live we thought as soon as he was done with us he's going to leave yeah because it wasn't violent because at one point like he was holding the knife to her and he like poked her arm and she was like ouch she goes oh i'm sorry i didn't mean to like it didn't seem like that's how it was going to violent end. in that way. It was definitely violent. Yeah. Um, she goes, and in that moment when we went to that other, she goes, I, his something changed in the way he was looking at us. She goes, I knew we were going to die. Oh and we God. hadn't felt that way. Yeah. The whole before. rest of it. And then he just starts cutting them. He starts <gasps> slashing them and stabbing them. Oh my God. And they get, and then he punches one of them in the face. Mm. They get away from him. Um, and one of, and I think Teresa crawls out the window, so she's naked and bloody and yeah. like running through the street. And the partner gets to the front door, oh my God. and she goes, "I couldn't open the door because I was so bloody." Oh my God! She gets the door open. She runs out. She yeah. runs. She sees Teresa lying on the ground. Like she runs past Teresa. Oh no! Bystanders come out and start helping. So he's gone. Guy yeah. leaves. It's in the middle of the night. It's in the middle of the night. Um, and there's like kid. There's like teenagers there's like people out yeah um so it's not late it's not late i can't remember if it's like midnight or it's nighttime though yeah Um, but it's not like two in the morning yeah because there's there's people out and they start helping them okay and then a police a policeman comes over at one point and he's like you have to stop yelling like you have to tell like is is he still here is the guy who hurt you around i'm like you can see like her muscle like she's torn up and she says uh She's like, you like, someone has to check on Teresa. Like, you guys have to check on Teresa. Like, I'm fine. Yeah. I'm alive and I'm talking to you. Yeah. Um, and they eventually, so Teresa did die. And then they, uh, there was all sorts of evidence around, like, and there's fingerprints everywhere. Yeah. And so they have, they know exactly, like, they run it and he's been in the system. I mean, they know who it is right away. Yeah. And how I don't do know you- how long it took them to find him, but they they picked him up. Did he have charges for rape or assault before? No, or what were like, his and the, prior? Most, the most recent thing, he had gone to jail. Uh, he was living with a aunt or a relative, 
her house had burned down and she, I think she had died in the house and he was suspected for arson. Yeah. Uh, but they couldn't prove it and let him go. And that was like two days prior. No. Like it was so oh, close God. to. And again, there's all this yeah. other stuff like aggravated, yeah. aggravated assault and yeah. all sorts of other stuff. Did he, did he, like, how did he choose them? Like, with they did, don't know. Did he know that and area? He can't, he's not coherent. Yeah. So that was the his lawyers kept wanting to bring up his history with mental illness. Okay. And the judge was like, "You don't get to. I, we've talked to him." We've put him through. He has been deemed fit for trial. So we don't get to so talk about that. So you don't get to talk about him not about him being crazy. Okay. And at one point during the trial in front of the jury, they made some mention of his prior mental illness. And the judge was like, bop, bop, bop. Jury, strike that. You don't. You don't get There to... is no. But if you're a jury, if and you're you, a juror. And you hear it. And you're watching this guy get wheeled in with oh, mittens and like all this stuff. He's not allowed to be in the room because. And they have to explain why he's not yeah. there. Yeah. Um, and then you hear them say this mental. So. They it, know whether they know or they don't. It's just curious. I mean, the recount of that night, it sounds like he was coherent enough to have some conversation to a point, And then he's coherent enough to pass the judge's test. But yeah. then he's like acting out during the court and like, okay. I, yeah, I don't. Curious. Was he on medication or was he? I don't know about medication. Okay. I. It's one of those things where you don't like. It's such a random To, to use flippant language. He's so obviously crazy. Uh-huh. Because if you're going to do something like that you're not normal quote yeah. unquote you're yeah. crazy but then everyone who commits any sort of heinous murder is crazy you know what i mean yeah. so like what is you what, know, what's your baseline yeah crazy is a word that like can be defined a million different ways mm-hmm. yeah i don't that's so sad it it was horrible yeah and just for her to have to be on stand and recount it over two days, like... I mean, that's why that guy... I mean, the title of that article is accurate. Yeah. That was so brave. And, like, her thing was, I'm alive, my family still has me, but it would be unfair to Teresa's family for me not to ensure yeah. that this guy went away forever. And he went away, he went away for life? Or? Yeah, he's got a, okay. a life sentence. Yeah, he... Wow. That's... I don't pick ones like that because they're just such a bummer and they're just horrible. Yeah. But like, I don't know. It happens. That story needs to be known. I know. Um, And the strength of her and like her partner. Like, that's so sad. Um, Yeah. Uh, You said there's that article. Are there any documentaries or are there any like things no. like that? And okay. like, I couldn't find like, I imagined like, it seems like. There would have been podcasts about it. There yeah. would have been. And I don't know if it's just because it's so horrible. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's all sorts of horrible crimes that yeah, they've been people covered. cover and talk about. Um, it was back. I don't know if I told it. was like 2014, I think, was the. So it was recent-ish, but not yeah. super, super recent. Welcome back to traumatic stories. Um, do some self-care. Go watch a little cartoon. Yeah. Or, oh, here you go, guys. We're going to do some self-care. We're going to, not that we're making light of any situation, but we're kind of. No, but you can't live in that you gotta, feeling. You got to come out of it. Let's let's do some self-care. Jackie. Oh, we're right now. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I got it. And don't answer it because I know you know the, the answer. I'm gonna I might you, not. It's a joke that I always <laughs> tell in the office. I just need you to be our listeners. Oh, okay. okay. Jackie, <laughs> what do you call? No, that's not. No, what was it? Oh, what? <laughs> uh, what was Beethoven's favorite fruit? 
I haven't heard this. Banana. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. All right, guys. There is your self care. Remember, there is brightness in this world too. You know, we have your yin, your yang. Yeah. Um. But at this point in time, we're gonna jump into another murder. Another bummer fest. Um. A depression session. Oh, great. Okay. So I'm gonna tell you about Deborah Green. Deborah Green. Mm-hmm. Okay. She's born Deborah Jones on February 28th, 1951. 51. A boomer. A boomer. And she's the second of two daughters. From the start, her parents can tell she's very intelligent. She teaches herself to read and write before she is three years old. That's impressive. Is mm-hmm. that true? Mm, the parents are saying it. Okay. Okay. Th- that's young. Yeah. 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 Uh, in school, Deborah becomes a National Merit Scholar and co-valedictorian in high school. Oh, she's smarty. All right. Yeah. Be- uh, people who know her describe her as someone who fits in with others and is definitely going to succeed in life. Okay. Most likely to succeed. <laughs> uh, class clown. That's what I was. Uh, really? And most unique. Oh, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> you snowflake. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it an offensive thing to win? I decided not to take it that way. So Deborah goes to the University of Illinois, uh, beginning in the fall of 1969, with a major in chemistry. I hated chemistry. Chemistry is so hard. Uh, and organic chemistry because it's, cause it's uh, like the rigors of science mm-hmm. with math sprinkled in. Mm-hmm. I so I took organic chemistry stoichiometry, and I loved my chemistry che- teacher. Oh, they're always so fun. Well, he was fun, and he's from Scotland, so he had that like. <gasps> brogue you know and yeah. he's just like rah, 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 rah. Mm-hmm. scottish i had no idea what he was saying during the lectures <laughs> which made chemistry that much better <laughs> yeah. um but he was awesome thank you so <laughs> back to the story my sister took a math class and uh-huh. her teacher was very hard to understand and she was talking to her now husband who maybe it was just her roommate at the time but she's like i don't know what to and he's like oh that teacher's the best teacher put in headphones with like classical music because it's you'll get lost trying to just just take notes on the math that they're in she Amazing. was like, dude, so it was great. Yeah. Quick thing. Did you, you mentioned Washington? Did you mention your tie? Oh, my tie was that this took place in Seattle, which is in Washington, Washington Apple. Got it. Okay. That was a good tie. Um, uh, which I also, in researching the story, how many crazy murders happened in Washington? Oh, God, the Pacific Northwest. I am not moving to Washington. <laughs> I'll tell you what. That's where all the murders happen. <laughs> we're all, no, we're all the intense murders. Yes, a lot, yeah, we did. We a talked lot about of this. intense murders When you think happen. of, like, stat crimes, mm-hmm. probably California, huge population, New York, huge population, mm-hmm. Michigan, same story, uh, but, like, creepy mm-hmm. murder murders? Mm-hmm. Up in Washington. Getting a lot of attention, Washington. We don't get enough vitamin D up here. <laughs> yeah, and there's just, I think there's just more people in Washington than Oregon. Mm-hmm. I don't know that to be true, but. Making shit up, I like it. Yeah. Okay, so. So she's a chemistry major, so. um, She initially wants to go into the chemical engineering field. However, when she graduates with a degree in chemistry in 1972, she decides to go to med- medical school. All right, she's like, I already did art stuff. Let's yeah, well, she more. was like, I think the market's just so saturated with chemical engineers that okay. i want to be a doctor got it so she goes to the university of kansas school of medicine from 1972 to 1975 and deborah social uh, specializes in emergency medicine okay during her undergraduate she meets and starts dating Dwayne green who's an engineer oh her name is soon to be green mm-hmm. uh they get married and um while she's at medical school uh, but by 1978 they get a divorce 
and the divorce ends on good terms, but Deborah just says they don't have anything in common. So they're just kind of boop. So during the divorce, Deborah meets Michael Farah, who is completing his last year of medical school. Okay. Michael is drawn to Deborah's intelligent and strong personality. However, Deborah has a bad habit of losing her temper at the smallest of things. Do we have a lady killer? Mm, let's find out. Okay. But besides that, they get married on May 26th of 1979. So Michael gets accepted to uh, do residency at this uh, university. So they move to Ohio. So Deborah starts practicing as an emergency physician, but eventually decides to switch specialties because she's like, Meh, emergency medicine, that's she seems not worth that. a little that. fickle. Uh-huh. So she begins her second residency in internal medicine, which is the same program that Michael did. Oh, okay. So now I'm going to tell you a little bit about their marriage and Anything careers. Anything you can and... do, I can do better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they are living in Ohio, and Deborah starts having several medical issues, including surgery on an infected wrist. She's getting migraines. Infected and she, wrist? And she has okay. insomnia. So Deborah also gives birth to their first child during this time. Uh, his name is Timothy, and he's born January 20th, 1982. Timothy Farah? Farah is the last mm-hmm. name? Two years later, uh, they have their second child, Kate. Um, and then by 1985, Deborah completes her medical fellowship. Deborah goes into private practice and Michael is finishing the last year of his cardiology fellowship. So, so we got some high powered yeah. doctor. Couple. And he's doing cardiology now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's doing hematology and oncology. Oh yeah. So Deborah's private practice is going super well. And then she gets pregnant a third time. And they have a little baby girl named Kelly. So now they got two girls and a boy. Two girls and a boy. And so their other two kids are older now and they attend a private high school. And some say Deborah is a, like a really good mother and she just wants the best for her children. Where is this story going? And, <laughs> and then Kurt. Oh, wait. Was this supposed to be about murder? <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> I was telling you about this family. <laughs> about a I lovely used to babysit lady. for them. <laughs> um, and she's like. She's there for all their activities, and she's encouraging them to she's do whatever engaged. they like. Yeah. yeah. Well, other people feel like she's driving her children too hard, and she oh, puts down their efforts too often. Yeah. Okay. So d- nothing's good enough for mom. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, but we're two two coins, yep. two coin sides here. Okay. So Deborah tries to go back to her private practice after her third preg- pregnancy. However, it's not going as well as she had liked it to be. Okay. And her chronic pain is uh, gotten worse. So in 1992, she gives up her practice and becomes a homemaker, and she's working part-time out of the family's house on medical peer reviews and Medicaid processing. Okay. Um, and people who know Deborah at this time say she's unfeeling to patients, and she's- She ob- doesn't have good bedside manner. Mm-hmm. And she's obsessive about her husband. Oh. Mm-hmm. But, like, she used to be super good with patients. Like, she had a really good bedside manner, so something- Something's There's changed. a change, yeah. She's fatigued. She's got- Chronic pain. Chronic pain. She got these three kids. (laughs) Um, So Michael starts seeing signs that Deborah is self-medicating. Okay. Um, She's using sedatives and narcotics to treat her chronic pain and infections, and he confronts her about it. He's a doctor. Yeah. But every time he confronts her, she's like, oh, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. Yeah. You're you're right. This is wrong. Yeah. Um, So the marriage between Michael and Deborah has never been ideal. Michael says that even at the beginning of the marriage, they didn't really say, I love you. That was like a partnership, mm-hmm. but not, yeah, not love. Yeah. So Deborah didn't have the coping skills to deal with challenging times. 
which meant that like with the smallest little thing, she'd just go into a fit of rage and she'd do this in public or in private. She didn't really care. Uh, so to deal with Deborah's temper, Michael just starts working super long hours. He's like, I'm going to, I just won't be home. Yeah. I'll remove myself from the arguments altogether. But when Michael is gone, Deborah is, I don't know, self-medicating and she's getting kind of talky. She's got high school kids and Uh young kids. And so she starts telling the kids about the relationship issues and how their father, it's all her father, their father's fault. Yeah. Um, and so the kids start resenting their father and disobeying him and to the point where Tim, which is the eldest son uh-huh. and Michael start getting into physical fights. Um, in January of 1994, Michael asks for a divorce and Deborah goes into this physical rage. She's throwing stuff. She's yelling. She's shouting. And Michael just moves out of the house. Um, but while they're apart, they decide to try to reconcile things. And they're, they're like, if we just get a bigger house. This will save our we marriage. Just need more space. Yes. So they they um they've only been separated for four months, and they put a bid on a six bedroom home in Prairie Village, Kansas. Okay. But before the sale goes through, the couple backs out of the deal, and Michael's like, you know what? I'm let's just yeah. call it quits. We're in so much debt anyways. Let's not do this to ourselves. Um, but shortly after, they pull out of buying a new home. Um, their Missouri home catches on fire while the family is out for the day. Huh. So they need a new home. Mm-hmm. So insurance investigators determined that the fire was caused by an electrical short in a power cord. Uh, they get enough money to repair the house, but decide instead to just move to Michael's apartment. And um, they decide to try and repair the marriage so again. instead of this big giant house, they're uh-huh. all going to cram into a little apartment? Yeah. But they're going to put a bid back on that six-bedroom home. Okay. Yeah. Um, however, again, that doesn't last long, and Michael wants to officially get a divorce. But he decides to wait until after their family slash school vacation to Peru. Oh, no. <laughs> um, the dreaded vacation with the ex. <laughs> we already get, bought we... the tickets. <laughs> <laughs> I've gone on one of those. <laughs> Dang it. Um, so they go down to Peru and Michael meets this woman named Margaret Hacker. And uh, her kids are at the same private school. And it's like a school trip. They're all going down there. And Margaret is a registered nurse and she's married to like another doctor and she's also unhappy in her marriage. And so Michael and her kind of bond. Mm-hmm. Once they're back from Peru, Michael and Margaret start an affair. Um, in late July, Michael asks for a divorce and Deborah just becomes hysterical. Mm-hmm. And she's running around the house and she's telling the children like, this is your father's mm-hmm. fault. He's so bad to me, blah, blah, blah. And she also becomes um, super upset that the divorce will disqualify the kids from debutante events. First of all, it's a weird thing to care about. Mm-hmm. But it's part of that world. Uh-huh. That's kind of lame that that's a requirement. Yeah. Yeah, actually. So your parents think have about to be that. together to go to a debutante. Like, yeah. That's lame. That, yeah. I actually didn't think about that. I concur. So, however... Even though Michael wants a divorce, he's worried about Deborah's drinking because mm-hmm. in this time frame, she's drinking a lot more, which means she's telling the kids a lot of, of, yeah. of their business. Loose lips sink ships. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> um, and at this point, Michael's at his other apartment again, and he gets a call from the kids that their mom is unresponsive on Ooh. the ground, and so he gets he rushes over to the house, and when he gets there. They can't find her. She's all of a sudden, she's gotten up. She's slithered away. <laughs> she's slithered away. And they're looking, looking, looking. And they finally find her hiding in the basement. And she tells him, where is this story going? <laughs> this is fascinating. Um, and she's like, oh, no, no, no. I just got back. I've been wandering around the town hoping that a car will just hit me. 
Yeah. Okay. Um, she was in the basement the whole time. Okay. So then in the early morning hours of October 24th, Michael gets a call that the six bedroom home that they had bought is now on fire. And that's where his family is sleeping. Oh, okay. They, they moved in. Yeah, they moved in. So that's where they're living now. But Michael's at his apartment. So a 911 call placed from the house at 1220 a.m. alerted police dispatchers to a possible trouble at the home, though the caller did not speak before hanging up. So they get a call and okay. then it hangs up. The first firefighters on the scene report that Deborah and her 10-year-old daughter, Kate, are safely outside the house by the time that they arrive. But Tim? What about the other brother? However, 6-year-old Kelly and 13-year-old Tim are still in the house. So Kelly's freaking out. She's like, you got to go get my siblings. They're in the house. And Deborah is cool as a cucumber. She didn't care that her kids are burning inside? That's how it looks to firefighters. Okay. So the firefighters go inside and they can only search a little bit before they have to back out because yeah. the fire is so it's intense. On fire. Yeah. Um, and by the time that they get the fire under control the next day, the only thing that's left is the garage and some stonework left in the front. Whoa. Mm-hmm. And like, even though there was high winds that night, they're like, this is... It burned way too fast. Way too fast. There's something going on here. Accelerants. Mm-hmm. So the bodies of Tim and Kelly are not recovered until the next morning. Ooh, so they did die. Mm-hmm. Kelly had died in her bed, most likely of smoke inhalation, and Tim's body was found on the ground floor near the kitchen. Wait, I'm confused on the kid. So Tim's the oldest brother. Mm-hmm. Kelly is... The six-year-old. The youngest. Mm-hmm. And, and she's the, a girl, not a boy uh, named Kelly. Uh-huh. And then there's... Kate, an, the middle one. There were two girls and a boy. Yeah. In my mm-hmm. head, there were two brothers. Okay. Uh, Tim's body was found on the ground floor near the kitchen, investigators initially assumed that he had died trying to escape the house but it was later determined that he had died in or near his bedroom also most likely a smoke inhalation and heat and that his body had fallen through burn flooring to where it was discovered yeah um so the remaining members of the family are all transported to police headquarters for questioning and um meanwhile the detectives are sent to the house to begin an investigation Mm -hmm. Um, according to a video of Deborah's interview with the police, Deborah reported that the family had a normal day prior to the fire. They had all gone to their various activities, mm-hmm. like some people had sports games, blah, 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 and the family all regrouped around 9 p.m. at the house. Deborah tells police... Without the dad. Without the dad. Deborah tells police that she had a couple drinks uh, after dinner, and then she went to her bed, and then leaving it only to speak to her, her son Tim in the kitchen sometime between 10 and 11 in the evening, mm-hmm. shortly before he went to bed. And then Kelly and Kate had gone to bed earlier, each taking one of the family's two dogs with them. So Deborah said that she had fallen asleep around 1130. At some point in the evening prior to falling asleep, she recalled that she had spoken to Michael, who had phoned the house asking who there had paged him. Okay. Uh, Deborah was awoken sometime after midnight by the sound of the home's built-in fire alarm system. And she, like... Is oh it's a false alarm. Let me just like okay. override it and then let me just take this battery out. Yeah, <laughs> and it's not turning off. So she's like, "What's going on?" And she sees smoke coming under her door. She's like, "Oh, it's a fire!" So she opens her door, and she she sees fire, and she closes her door, and she goes out her um like this deck that's connected to her first floor bedroom, and while she's standing on the deck, she can hear her son Tim on the home's intercom, and he's just like, "Mom, like, what do I do? Like, what do I do?" Yeah, and then Denver explains to police um, that she just tells him to stay in the house and wait for firefighters to rescue him. Is that what you would say? No, I'd be like, get the fuck out of there. Yeah. If you have a window, like, get out the window. Yeah. 
I don't know. I can remember when we moved. So we moved. We lived in San Diego for like a year. Mm-hmm. When we moved into that house, it had. Um, it was a nice neighborhood, but it had uh, bars on the bedroom oh, windows. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I remember like the first thing we did when we moved in was we had like fire drills. And I yeah. remember my parents being like, step here. That falls. This is how you open it. Yeah. Can you crawl out? Like Aww. making sure little bodies could get out of there yeah. by ourselves without them. <laughs> that's what you do. Yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's all going on. And in the meantime, she's running to the neighbor's uh, house and she's like, you need to call 911. And she returns to the house and she finds Kate who's climbed through her second floor bedroom window. So that's how Kate... And Kate she, saved herself. And she gets onto the roof of the home's garage. And Deborah calls to Kate. And she's like, just jump. Jump into my arms. I'll catch you. Yeah. Deborah doesn't catch her. Kate falls to the ground. But she's fine. Doesn't try to catch her? Or is it hard to catch someone jumping off the roof? I don't know. I wasn't there. All right. Okay. Not at all. So detective noted that during her interview, Deborah does not appear to have been crying or, like, was crying. She's but just, again. She's acting yeah. strangely. Everyone reacts to trauma differently Definitely. but uh they're saying that she's very talkative and even cheerful she repeatedly refers to tim and kelly in the past tense and refers to, and at this point she doesn't know they're dead Ooh, and that's she, a bad sign mm-hmm, and she refers to all of her children by their ages rather than their names what so he she goes 13 year old this uh-huh the... yeah so she goes yes. like he used to be my 13 year old uh-huh um it looks bad it looks bad and so her accounts of times from the previous evening are all over the place like her story is drunk he's okay (laughs) that too (laughs) well she had only two cocktails yeah Mm -hmm. no she didn't (laughs) what what's the pour level on that cocktail yeah yeah you can make a bottle of wine fit into one glass Mm. (laughs) (laughs) so at 5 30 a.m a detective arrives from the fire scene to advise those at the police station that tim and kelly had been found dead in their home Deborah initially reacts with sadness that quickly changes to anger and she starts shouting at the detectives and she's claiming that the firefighters had hadn't done enough to save her children. She's calling investigators, investigators pathetic. And she's allegedly, allegedly, um, I'm not guilty. You're (laughs) guilty. So she starts calling investigators pathetic. You know when you're wrong and you just spin it into being angry (laughs) so people will stop talking to you? Don't look at me. And she's saying like, you didn't tell me that they had died. And she's demanding to see Michael. And she's like, I want to go see my house. Um, and Deborah was released from the police station early that morning on October 24th after questioning. So okay. they're like, get out of here. So then they talk to Michael and they immediately tell him that they found Tim and Kelly. Yeah. And Michael then tells them about their bad marriage, how he had fallen ill with nausea, vomiting and diarrhea after Peru. Uh, but he's like, a lot of people got sick on that trip. Yeah. And just um, sick. yeah. Vacation and like, belly. And then he got better. And then a week later he relapsed and he's hospitalized. And he develops sepsis. Eventually, he recovers from that. And they can't figure out, like, what's going yeah. on. Every time I see my wife, I seem to get sick. <laughs> and he goes home to eat dinner with his family yeah. and Deborah, And he gets sick again. And he's vomiting. He's diarrhea. Hospitalized again. Recovers. Sick again. And he, he starts seeing this pattern. But he's like, ah, it's probably stress. Like, every time I go home, it's Deborah's stressful. there. It's stressful there. And in the meantime, he's he's seeing Margaret. He's having that affair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Margaret's like, dude, your wife is poisoning you. Oh, she called it. Uh huh. And he's like, no, no, no. <laughs> like, no, she's yeah. not. That's crazy. That's crazy. That's just <laughs> that's crazy. So Deborah's taking care of Michael at the family home during all this time. And Deborah is still drinking heavily. 
and she starts saying like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about committing suicide. Mm. And she's like kind of laying this brick down. And um, so Michael's like, this, this is all weird. It's not adding up. So he starts searching the house for clues. This is after the kids have died or before? This is all before. Yeah. Yeah. And so he says that he's he, telling this story. Yeah. He, he's like, I, I went into her purse and I find these seed packets. Seed packets? Uh-huh. And, <gasps> they're, and they're labeled castor beans. What are castor beans? You'll find out. And a copy of a supposedly anonymous letter that had been sent to Michael urging him to divorce Deborah. No, urging him not to divorce Deborah. And an empty vial of potassium chloride. Potassium chloride. Uh-huh. It was bad stuff, right? Yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> I couldn't understand my chemistry teacher. <laughs> so Michael confronts Deborah, and she's like, "No, no, no, no! I'm I'm going to use all that stuff to commit suicide." And That's he, for me to die, not you. Yeah. And um, but like as he's talking to her, she's like super drunk and she's acting super strange. So he's like, "Ah, I'm going to call the cops." Like fifty-one fifty-one or fifty-one fifty yeah. her. Yeah. yeah. And so he's like, we need you to get psych- psychiatric care. Yeah. And uh, so they take her in. And a f- physician on duty is like, she smells like booze, but she's not visibly drunk. And she also doesn't really appear to be suicidal. She's not saying any context clues for that. And um, she seems okay. And But when Michael comes to get her, she just changes her demeanor. She's yeah. spitting in his face. She's being very hostile. And then she said, you are going to get these kids over our dead bodies. Ooh. Mm-hmm. So Deborah finally agrees to voluntary commitment, but then she just leaves the ER without telling anyone. She just was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Sign me up. Cool. Bye. Bloop. And they find her hours later, like walking home and then they commit her again. Uh, so while in the hospital for treatment, Deborah is diagnosed with major bipolar depression with suicidal impulses. Yeah. And she's placed on a bunch of medication and she returns home like four days later. Um, however, Michael, in the meantime, research. Do you have solo custody of your kids when that's your diagnosis? I don't know. Like, for her? Like, does he know that's her? Di- like, doesn't it seem a little yeah scary that if that's what your ex-wife or current wife who's going to be your ex-wife, that mm-hmm. if you know that diagnosis, that your kids are alone with her? I doubt that they shared that diagnosis yeah. with her husband. Because it's your medical information that they don't need to necessarily tell. But maybe. I- however... Michael, in the meantime, is like, let me find out what these castor beans are all about. Yeah, let me Google this real quick. And he realizes that Deborah had been poisoning him. Because it's the symptoms that he had. Mm-hmm. So he moves out immediately. And leaves his kids there? Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. So the day of the fire, he had spent the afternoon with Margaret, and then he picked up Tim and Kelly, and they go to Tim's hockey game. After dropping the kids back off at their mother's house at about 8:45. He and Margaret go out to dinner and then um he leaves her house and goes back to his house and like at 11:15. And then throughout the evening on October 23rd in 1995, a series of phone calls between Deborah and Michael escalate into a fight. Michael can tell Deborah's been drinking and he tells her that he knows that she's been poisoning him. Ooh. And he's like, "Get your act together." Or I'm going to go to social services and I'm going to take the kids away. Got it. So he doesn't think that they're in danger. Mm-mm. So this is that night that, of the that's fire. That's what yeah. incites it all. Mm-hmm. So they get off the phone and he watches TV and he falls asleep. And then he wakes up to the call about the fire. Yeah. So here's Kate's account of that night. Kate is... The daughter. 11? Yeah. 6? 11. No. It's between 6 and 13. She's the 11-year-old. Sure. 
So she says she wakes up to smoke and she's the one who calls 911 and hangs up. Okay. Because she's scared. She doesn't know yeah. what's going on. Yeah. She describes her no, mother. She's supposed to call 911. Yeah. But they don't really tell you what you're supposed to say to anybody. <laughs> Help. So she describes her mother as being very upset during the fire and she's crying. And she describes how all the kids in the family, like, they love their mother and they had a good relationship with her and, and with Michael, but they were upset with him for, like, leaving their mother. And when she finds out that Tim and Kelly have passed away, she's super surprised that Tim didn't go out the bedroom window like she did. And, like, that just really confuses yeah. her. Um, So back to, like, the police investigation. So they suspect arson. So they start looking for a, a point of ignition, mm -hmm. but they can't find a setter. And so they they suspect Michael and Deborah at this point. And so they test their clothing and and their hair. And neither Deborah nor Michael's clothing showed evidence of having them uh, having been in contact with an accelerant. Okay. Michael's hair showed no signs of singeing, but Deborah's, which had been cut twice between the time of the fire and the time that the police took hair samples, showed significant What's singeing. What's the time frame? Ah, like oh, like not that long. Okay. Yeah, like a month maybe, a couple weeks. Some people get their hair cut every. <laughs> That's insane. I'm joking. <laughs> um. But, so she, her hair that they have yeah. is singed. But that's weird because she said she never had contact with the fire. She said she opened her bedroom door, closed oh, it immediately, okay, went okay, out okay. her window. So they're like, that doesn't, that doesn't add up. And on top of that, the neighbors that she ran to that night said that when Deborah came to the door, her hair was wet. Like she, she like. So that the fire wouldn't get her? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. okay. And her clothes don't have an accelerant on it. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh, Deborah is arrested on November 22nd, and she's charged with two counts of first degree murder, two counts of attempted first degree murder, and one count of aggravated arson. Her bail is set at $3 million, which is the highest bail ever asked for in Johnson County at the time. Um, so, in January of 1996, Deborah's defense claimed that the fire in the family home had been uh, set not by Deborah, but by her son, Tim. Why? Because they said um, he had once been caught by local police setting off Molotov cocktails. Molotov cocktails? Yeah. And the defense also attempted to attribute Michael's poisoning to Tim, who did much of the cooking in the household. Okay. I I'm irritated by that. Yeah. me. Too. I, I was really upset by that. Because I, I don't know what happened, mm -hmm. but it seems I feel pretty sure that it's her. Mm -hmm. So to blame that on the thirteen-year-old kid that you killed is is outrageous. It's outrageous, and like they will bring in later like um, a nanny who hadn't been there for a couple of years, but she's like, okay. oh, I saw I I caught him trying to set fires all the time. So they like First, use those well, stories. Let's also go this way. Kids play with fire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I played with fire. My yeah. brother played with fire. We played with campfires. Fire's fun. Fire's fun. Don't play with fire. Don't play with fire. <laughs> so, anywho, that's their stance that yeah. they're taking. So, Michael underwent surgery uh, in, in December of 1995 to treat an abscess in his brain caused by the poisoning. Ooh. Uh-huh. In case Michael did not survive, prosecutors who felt that his testimony was key to their case yeah. videotaped his testimony yeah. beforehand. The surgery was a success, and uh, Michael took the stand, and he got to say everything. Yeah. Um, and under cross-examination by, uh, Deborah's counsel, he admitted that he, as well as Deborah, had contributed to the problem in the couple's marriage. And he's like, we did, 
I did get into physical fights with my son, Tim. So that came out. So they're like, there's more motive. But Michael wasn't there. So, yeah. yeah. Um, also, there's this <laughs> there's a store called the Earl May. And they go there and they're like, oh, you sell castor beans. Like, have you have you ever witnessed anybody in this room? Can you point to anyone in this yeah. room you've sold to? And they're like, yes, I've sold castor beans to Deborah. And medical that lady right there bought mm-hmm. castor beans from me. And medical but these are just beans, <laughs> not magical beans. Uh, so medical evidence was presented that Michael's illness matched the symptoms of ricin poisoning, which is derived from castor seeds. So arson investigators testified as to how they had located the origin and cause of the and house fire. And if you're fire. willing to poison somebody, you're willing to burn a house down. Yeah. I mean, not necessarily. But, but he wasn't there. Like, he, like. She's willing to poison him. Yeah. That shows she's willing to cross lines. Yeah. Got it. So arson investigators go in and then they see multiple unconnected small fires um start in the basement and that they see char patterns on the house floors um where like liquid accelerant um had been used to start the fire and so she started little fires all over yeah and the poor patterns were found on the ground in second floors uh, poor patterns were found on the ground in second floors indicating that a flammable liquid had been poured there and had covered many areas of the ground floor it blocked off the stairway from the Ooh. second floor to the ground floor, and it covered much of the hallway on the second floor. The poor pattern stopped at the door of the, mas- of the master bedroom, but had soaked into carpeting in the hallway leading to the children's bedrooms. Okay. So, whether it's her or not, mm-hmm. very intentional fire setting, trapping those kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. A crime. A crime occurred. Mm-hmm. The judge ruled that she would stand trial once for all the charges against her rather than be tried separately on each charge. Mm-hmm. When confronted with evidence, Deborah acknowledged having set the fire that destroyed her home, but denied having any clear memory of the event. She continued to claim that Tim had been the one who poisoned his father. I hate it. On April 13th, Deborah asked for a plea bargain. And on April 17th, the plea was made public when Deborah appeared in court to plead no contest. So Deborah is sentenced to two concurrent 40-year prison sentences. Deborah is now serving her sentence at the Topeka Correctional Facility, earliest possible release date as November t- uh, 21, 2035. Hmm. So not that far off. Dude. Uh, if you want to know about this case, because there's a lot more details, Anne Rule covers the case in her book titled Bitter Harvest, A Woman's Fury, A Mother's Sacrifice. Hmm. Um, but yeah, that is the case of Deborah Green. Oh, um, green, Washington apple. It's green. It, actually, when we poured it, it wasn't green. <laughs> and I was like, Red. oops. But sometimes apples sometimes are green. Sometimes apples are green. Like a good old Granny Smith. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Nice little yes. tart apple. A little mm. tart apple in there. I was texting my mom the other day about apples. Yeah. I wonder if this is why I did that. Did I have apples on the brain? I decided I wanted to have apple snacks. Yeah. Like, I, and I was like, ooh, what kind of cheeses do I want to put on apples? Oh. So I was asking her, like, what kind of apple do, do I want? And then she was like, well, what are you looking for? And I was like, well, I want, what kind of cheeses would go well with it? Mm-hmm. So paired with my mother's suggestions and, and Google, I think I'm going to do some apple shopping this week. I like it. Yeah. Yay. Well, you guys, that's been another week of Killer Cocktails, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Killer Cocktails. 
as always. On our talent was Jackie Andrea. Uh, be sure to check out our Instagram at Killer Cocktails Podcast or stop by our website, KillerCocktailsPodcast.com, for up to date information, photos, contests, and more. Our logo was created by Michelle Firm, whose amazing art can be found at MichelleFirmDesign.com. Our music was created by Nikolai Heidlus, and we'll be back next week on hashtag Murder Mondays. <laughs> You said it fine. I know, but it's just so many words. <laughs> okay. I'm tired. I'm tired, Jackie. I'm tired. <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs>